This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My guest today is a much-loved actress, TV presenter and regular panellist on Loose Women. In her recent memoir, The Unwelcome Visitor, she opens up about her experience of depression, alcoholism and what sobriety has gifted her. I'm so delighted today to be talking to a real national treasure, Denise Welsh. So welcome, Denise. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's um, gorgeous and sunny here in Cheshire and everybody's sitting outside all the... uh, the restaurants. I live near Alderley Edge, which is very sort of footballers' wives. Do you know what I mean? Ah. So all the all the Porsches and all the cars are all are all are all lined up. I'm so not like that, but anyway, it's ah. uh, it's quite fun to see. I'm admiring your picture behind you. It's stunning. Yeah, my husband is a, a, an artist. That's what sobriety does. He um, he became an artist, a professional artist, age forty and now sells all over the world. Does that describe his life when he was drinking, You do you think? Because it looks quite sort of chaotic, or is that...? Well, yeah, he, I think he kind of... He, he paints the demons that were in his head. It's very um, male-centric, if that's the word. His paintings, a lot of them are. And it's about man's desire to consume at all costs. They want more money, more women, more drugs, more drink, more this, and ultimately never makes them happy. That's kind of the the elevator pitch of what a lot of his work is about. So it means that some people love and really get off on his work and some people can't live with it. The one thing about Lincoln's work, nobody sort of goes, yeah, it's all right. You know, they either either go, oh my God, I need that. Or they go, no way. Yeah, Yeah. but it shouts out to me. So uh, I'll have to make him an offer on that one. So I'm interested actually, Denise, in um, your childhood because you come Mm -hmm. from the Northeast, right? So I'd love to hear about that. Well, I had a very happy childhood. I I, I didn't realise kind of how happy my childhood was, I suppose, until I went to drama school when I was 18. And 
it was only then that I realized how close I was to my parents. You know, I used to really keep in touch all the time as much as you could without mobile phones. And I used to look really forward to the holidays. And then I was surprised when my friends at drama school said, oh, you know, I did the obligatory three days with the parents and then I couldn't wait to get back to London. I was the complete opposite of that. So yeah, my dad was in confectionery. The family business was Welsh's toffees and my dad didn't really want to go into the family business, but I came along a little bit earlier than planned. And my grandpa was quite, um, was quite strict. And so he insisted that dad left university and went into the family business, which dad always regretted really. But, but he did, but he threw himself into his social life. He used to do a drag act. He used to go out as Raquel um, on a sort of a semi-pro basis, really. So he always had it in his veins. Yeah, so we grew up in Whit- Whitley Bay sort of area. And then when I was about 12, we moved to the other side of the river over at the County Durham site. And, uh, and that's where my dad still, my mum died eight years ago. That's where my dad still lives to this day. So it was a nice childhood. It wasn't a theatrical childhood. We knew a few people in the industry because my dad's best friend was and is the writer Ian Lafrenet, who wrote Porridge and the Lightly Lads and Avida Zainpet and all those greats. And um, Ian went off and sort of became a writer. And in fact, that's who I stay with when I go to LA is my godfather. So through him, we knew a few people, but it wasn't something that, that I ever thought about getting into. It was only when I was 14 and I was at school at Concert Grammar. I was not very good at school. I was quite lazy. There was nothing really turned me on and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I got into the school plays. It was like a light went on. It still didn't occur to me that I could do it as a career, but it certainly gave me some, it showed that I could do something and I could do something well. And it was something that I got rewarded for and patted on the back for, for the first time, because that was never going to happen, happen academically. I just it wasn't interested. My kids are both the same. They're both incredibly talented creatively, but school bored them. And now they wish they'd work, you know, worked harder at school. But um, yeah, so it was quite a normal upbringing. And then at um, 18, I was going to teach. I thought that's all I could do with my drama. And my dad and my drama teacher said to me, why don't you go to drama school? So I did. And um and that's how it all started. So um, did your mum and dad drink? Yes, they did. My mum and dad were very young when they had me. They were only like 22. And then they were about 25 when they had my sister. So rather than leave us, everything used to happen at my mum and dad's flat. So it was kind of a party flat. And um, their, their friends were very sort of colourful. I always remember it. Apparently, I'd come downstairs about five in the morning once and there was people still there. And I said, come on, let's go to the Rex, which was this hotel or some such thing. They loved to used to love to tell me these stories. So they did drink. They were quite social drinkers and they used to argue a bit when when they'd had a drink, like I suppose a lot of parents um, do. They sort of they used to moan about each other all the time, but they loved each other. You know, it was sort of like that. My mum. Later in life, she became somebody that drank more quietly. If mum was here, she would admit to that. She certainly did have a little... You know, I, I, I didn't go down the AA route, as you know, but something when I did, when I did try AA, at the, very, well, the first time I gave up drinking about 12 years ago, I always remember them saying that the sort of analogy of being an alcoholic is when you become powerless over alcohol, that it doesn't matter how much you drink, it's if you become powerless over it. My mum was a classic example of that. She wasn't 
somebody that got up in the morning and, you know, had the vodka and all of that, which is not the kind of drinker I was. But at 10 o'clock at night, my mum would go and pour herself a gin and bitter lemon, a tiny bit of bitter lemon and the gin. And it would kind of change her personality. It never really made mum a sort of happy drunk. It made her more of a morose person. And so I would say that my mum had a drink problem, sure, but it wasn't that she drank loads. It was that she became powerless over it when she when she drank. So, but my dad has always been has always been much more of a social a social drinker. He's a sort of dad doesn't has never been a drinker in the house, whereas my mum was. Yeah, I mean, you know, like when I was younger, I kind of thought drinking was just social and normal. I used to go to the local pub, and people called me glugsy because I could drink really really quick you know I would go in there four or five pints in an hour and then probably stay leave the van there and say you know what I'm not going over dinner I'm standing in the pub was there a stage in your life that you noticed your drinking was getting sort of a little bit out of control no not 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 my my drinking got out of control once I'd had postnatal depression really I remember getting drunk at 14 when I was babysitting and my mum thought she was going to have to take me to the hospital to get the stomach pumped. And the next day, they had to sit up with me all night. And the next day, dad made me walk the mile down to the person's house to apologise. You know, I had all of those sort of teenage rites of passage episodes of drinking, but nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. You know, when I was at drama school, I was never really, you know, I used to like a drink and I used to get pissed with my pals sometimes, but just in the same way as everybody else did. That went on through my 20s I would say as well the same as everybody else um I was you know constantly on tour in the theater so obviously after the show you had a few drinks but it, it never ruled my life at all never had a problem never wouldn't bother me if I went with, with or without it when I met Tim my kid's dad he was very into this kind of celebrity golf for a time so we'd always go to the um, celebrity golf tournaments and the golf tournament was always on the Sunday. That was the big day. And I can remember always being massively hungover because me and all, me and Tim and all the other celeb crowd used to get there on a Saturday night. We used to get bang on it and wake up with terrible hangovers. But again, everybody was doing that. But then I wouldn't start taking the drink. I didn't drink in the house, didn't drink on my own, none of that. And then, of course, when I was 31, 32, I had Matthew and um, a much wanted child with a husband that I loved with, you know, a bit of money in the bank and everything, you know, a husband who desperately wanted a child as well. And, um, and then I was plunged into this horrific postnatal depression, which was, which just changed my life. That was when I was about 31, 32. But I can honestly say that it was probably during my Coronation Street days. That was towards being 40 when I went into Corrie, maybe 39 years old, that I started to self-medicate my way through two nervous breakdowns. We, we, I mean, now I call them an episode of major depressive disorder. We called them breakdowns at the time. People still say a nervous breakdown. Mm. And I was struggling to keep a family together, keep a job that demanded 14-hour, 16-hour day commitments with my depression crippling me and not talking about it very much to anybody. And drink was my way of dealing with it, which was now on hindsight, I wish there'd been more people like you in the sober community, more people like me talking out about it, but there just wasn't. There was lots of big drinkers in my industry, but people didn't realize 
the depths to which I was going, that, you know, the, um, the, the, the drinking alone, it then led to doing cocaine because somebody told me that um, it would make me feel better. And I mean, listen, if I was going to be a normal person who dabbled in drugs, Dave, I would have done it in my late teens and early 20s whenever, or even younger when everybody else was doing it. It never, ne- I never get, got into weed. I never got into Charlie. I never got into, it just wasn't in my world. I didn't seek it out. It didn't really come to me. It didn't interest me. And it's funny because I speak to people now, they go, but you must have tried that and you must have tried that. I go, well, I didn't. You know, I, I, I don't remember if I didn't want to or it just didn't, it just wasn't in my world. And so when somebody offered me this cocaine when I was, as I say, late 30s, I was in such a deep depression. I mean, it's very difficult to describe clinical depression to people who've never had it because it's not about circumstances, it's a chemical reaction, it's a physical and mental illness. And I did try the cocaine, and of course, miraculously, it did make me feel better for 40 minutes. Then, of course, you can drink more, and it started this nightmare, which kind of went on for 13 years, I would say, of just living in a a hell. I was the same as you. I mean, I used to see guys, you know, when I was in my 40s, coming out the toilet in the pub, rubbing their nose and rubbing their gums and stuff. And I, I was so naive. I mean, I'm yeah. not I'm not silly either, but I just, it was never part of my thing. No. I've never really gambled. I've, you know, it was always booze. And, and But I hit it hard, you know. Um, So I can understand that. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about your postnatal depression? Because no. that was when Matthew was born, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what happened after that? Well, I had a very wonderful pregnancy. I loved being pregnant. I loved every day of being pregnant. I wasn't somebody that was desperate to get the baby out. I just, I, I was like the typical blooming woman in pregnancy. Apparently the fall is harder if you're, if you're like that. And um, I, postnatal depression was something that nobody really talked about very much. And in all of the baby magazines and stuff, there would be a, there would be lots of things about what could physically go wrong with the child, what could physically happen to you. And then at the bottom of the corner, it would be, if the baby blues continue longer than you think they should, then go to your GP. That was basically it. So I was the kind of person that, that with the kind of friends I had, you know, lots of industry friends, lots of gay friends, and, and, and they all thought that I'd sort of have this baby and be out at a nightclub two nights later. So it was a shock to everybody when a week after I had Matthew, after quite a long birth, it was the natural childbirth hospital, and I'd been promised pain relief, but then I didn't sort of get any, and it was 42 hours of pretty arduous labor. But anyway, out came this beautiful, healthy baby boy, and all was right with the world. And after five days, we took him home. And I had what is commonly known as the baby blues. I was incredibly emotional. Everything felt a bit weird, you know, sort of dreamlike. But that's understandable. You've got a new baby, you know. And, and, and every card I got or flowers I got, wow. I burst into tears. And I wasn't worried because I sort of knew I had the baby blues. So I was just heightened emotionally. So basically, I had him on the Saturday. I went home on the Wednesday. On the Thursday, my mum and dad were coming down to see their first grandchild. And I'd always dreamt of the day that my parents would see their first grandchild. I dreamt of it. And um, and they came down. We lived in this lovely flat in North London. And um, I remember feeling odd, not right, not how I should have been feeling. 
I can't say it was depression at that time. It was, um, I wasn't connected to the world. Everything was like a dream. And when they came down, I just felt odd. I didn't feel anything, but I put on the painted smile and, and went through it. That night I had a panic attack based on nothing. I wasn't frightened about anything. I wasn't anxious. I had a panic attack like I'd never had before, which went on for hours. And a panic attack is terrifying. My heart was racing like it was coming out of my body and it wouldn't stop. It was like when you nearly have a car accident and your heart is like this, but then you don't have the accident and you eventually calm down. It was like have it about to have the accident and that never going away. And when I woke up in the morning, my whole lactation system had gone. My whole way of feeding my child had gone, vanished. Now, 30 years on, had I known or had somebody known that that would be the biggest red flag of hormonal chaos caused to woman, but it, nobody did. My mum had been a psychiatric nurse, but she didn't register that. The midwife was appalling. And there are some wonderful midwives, but sadly not my community midwife, who said to me, oh, that's very worrying. And that normally only happens if a spouse or a parent or the baby dies. You'll have to go out and get some bottles. I was almost in a catatonic state of depression by this time. I didn't have purple psychosis, but apparently I I had one foot in that. I was on the verge of it, in and out of lucidity. But mostly it was just black, 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 black depression. And uh, my mum took me forcibly to the doctors. I could hardly speak. And the doctor leant forward to me and said, um, I remember she leant forward, an older woman, probably about my age now. And she said, "Um, well, I had five children, dear, and I just didn't have time to get depressed, is what she actually said to me, which with those words have stayed with me ever since. And um, if it wasn't for my mum and dad, I don't think I would probably be here now. And, and my husband, Tim, was very, very good. It was horrible for him as well. Anyway, as a result of ultimately dealing with that trauma, on hindsight, I wish I hadn't, you know, the show must go on is in my DNA. But in fact, I've learned that the show doesn't always have to go on. And the show, the show should stop for mental illness just as much as it stops for physical illness. I remember one night when we were doing um, 60 Minute Makeover and there was a new producer there and um, we weren't ordering rounds of beer. We were ordering bottles of wine each. So each round was a bottle of wine each. And I think I drank four or five bottles of wine that night, went to bed at four in the morning and, and had to get up at six. I was absolutely gone, you know, and we were working, well, like you know, in TV, you work ridiculous hours. So I became one of the first people to speak out about this publicly. When I was first poorly, I had nowhere to turn. The only thing we had was print media. There was nothing, nothing anywhere. There was nobody like me who somebody might write. And I was only barely known, you know, but I got asked to go on The Time, The Place, Robert Kilroy, Silk, all those shows that people of my generation will remember. And like my agent at the time was saying, oh, I don't want you talking about this. People will think you're mad. You'll never work again. I said, I don't care. I'm not having other people suffering like this and having nobody to talk to and having this hidden away like some guilty secret because if I can have it, anybody can have it. I was the last person who would have had it. Ultimately, I would talk to psychologists on these shows and they'd say, well, if we'd seen you when you were pregnant, we probably would have had an idea. And I said, with all due respect, 
um, you wouldn't have. You you absolutely wouldn't have. You know, there was nothing in my pregnancy. There was nothing in my past that lent itself to what happened to me. And ultimately, the hundreds, nay, thousands of women I've spoken to over the last 30 years would pretty much say the same. So, and then, of course, I felt like, you know, I, I mean, having said that, I was also a party animal as well. But what would happen was that by then, you know, so I wasn't constantly in a sick depression for all of those years. There were times when I wasn't in a depression um, and I would still go out. I was somebody that wished I'd stopped drinking, but I couldn't and didn't want to at the time. And so I would go out socially and drink. But when everybody else would go home, there was no off button for me. No off button. I would go on till five, six in the morning and go straight to work. And when people talk about a functioning alcoholic, you know, Dave, you're not really functioning. You might be physically turning up to work. I was physically doing loose women and physically going to do drama series and somehow pulling off a reasonable performance. But I wasn't really functioning because inside I was dying. It was grim. And everybody loves a drink, you know. And my one of my not favorite quotes, but most interesting quotes is, you know, alcohol is the only drug that you have to apologize for um, not taking, you know, why aren't you drinking? Oh my God, you're so boring. You know, all of that, obviously now I realize that's people's own insecurities who say things like that to you because they're, they're worried about their own drinking. They're the people that don't want you to stop. That highlights their own issues. I like to point out to some of the magazines, the magazines loved me drinking because they, I was always in some hell you know, some marriage hell or drunk hell or drug hell or this hell or that hell. They didn't, they hated me stopping drinking because they had no hell to put mm. me in. And I, I was very much a tabloid target. You know, I was hacked for years by the mirror group and they put bugs in my hotel room. It was a really pretty desperate time. And that didn't help, you know, because it made me totally paranoid, which made me drink more. I don't blame anybody or anything for my drinking, Dave. I'm responsible and I don't make excuses, but there are reasons. And I would honestly say that, you know, some of the press, really um, seemed to target me and, 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 and I was hacked for a long time. And of course we didn't know about the hacking. So you felt you didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust, you know, even some people, I wouldn't go as far as not in my immediate family, but when, when you don't know hacking exists, but everything you do ends up on a magazine or in the papers, everywhere you go, there are paps outside when nobody knows you're going, you start to distrust the people closest mm. to you really, really massively. So, and, um, and, and so it was a pretty traumatic time for me. And I almost felt like I lived two lives, you know, the life I went home to in the Northeast where we'd moved back to. And then I went to London and lived my other crazy life. And it was all very, very weird. But I'll be perfectly honest, you know, what stopped me drinking was meeting Lincoln. And what stopped Lincoln drinking was meeting me. We were both alcoholics. We hadn't accepted that we were, and we were alcoholics for different reasons. I mean, we often talk about how amazed we are that two people with a 15-year age gap, because I'm nearly 15 years older than Lincoln, would meet in a nightclub at six o'clock in the morning in Holborn that doesn't open till four, <laughs> would, then, would then get sober together and have the marriage that we yeah. do and the life that we have created. It's unbelievable what, what those origins were. And we neither of us know what would have happened had we not met each other. It's crazy. Um, I mean, um, I often think about that with my M, you know, because um, you know how we met and um, she's not a big drinker at all. And I honestly thought, Denise, that I would just drink forever. I never thought I would 
give up or would want to give up. How did Em deal with your drinking when you first got together? To be honest, I I hid it from her really well. Uh, I lived on my own. She lived with the family. I would never talk to her in the evening past about seven o'clock. I will always make up an excuse that I'm watching a film or someone's coming around because I know about 10 o'clock I'd be slurring and she would find, you know. Right. So I always, you know, I think when you've got a drink problem, you become very devious and clever. Uh, and when I moved in just a few days before I told her, I said, I think I'm a functioning alcoholic. And then what could she do with that? You know, I'd sold my house. She told everyone I was moving in. I moved in that week and she went out twice that week. And I'm literally sitting there with her children, triplets. They were five years old then. Triplets? Wow. Yeah. And, and I didn't have any booze in the house. And, and I was literally climbing the walls. Gradually, I, I introduced it into the family home. And then gradually I started getting drunk more. And then she started to think, hang on, there's a problem here, you know. And um, I mean, we, we've got a fantastic relationship. We really have. But we're lucky to be together, really, because like what you say, you know, we would argue a lot, but it was mainly me because I, when I drank, I become... It's alcohol. Yeah. I, I sometimes want to say to my friends, but you know, you know what it's like, Dave, when you get sober, the last thing you want to do is be the drink police, you know, and, and, and I make sure that I'm, that I'm not that. So, you know, I surround myself with friends. Most of my friends still drink because we didn't go down the normal orthodox AA route. We didn't surround ourselves with sobriety necessarily. So, you know, Mike, obviously we, we, we sorted the wheat from the chaff when we got sober because we don't go to the places where the hanger-ons go. And I have no problem with my friends drinking. I just can't be around drunk people. It's, uh, it, 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 it was the arguing. And the fact is that, you know, when Lincoln got sober before me because I gave him an ultimatum, I then carried on drinking because I didn't think I had as much of a problem. But I realized that I was just spoiling for a fight. And, you, and, and I look at some of my friends who, outside alcohol, have an amazing relationship. But with drink, it's a disaster. And it is the cause of all, most of their rows. And so we, we decided that we were going to lose each other, you know. And so Lincoln stopped first. And then, I, like I say, I was on a tour of a play that demanded a lot from me. So I thought, well, I, I haven't got as much of a problem as him, clearly. You know, because I don't I don't drink before a show. I've never been on stage with a drink. Um, I'm quite disciplined when I know I've got shows the next day. That lasted for a while. But then I'd come in and he was sort of touring around with me for a bit, sort of in between jobs. And he didn't really know what he was going to do with, with, with his life at this time. Because he used to work, he used to be the PR marketing manager for Stringfellows. So he was living in a right Soho world where his... His social life and partying didn't start till three in the morning. And, uh, you know, so that's what that, that that's where, where he sort of was. And so I'd come in from the theatre and I'd say, well, I've only had a couple of glasses. He, it, not that he was questioning me, but I'd say the next day, oh, I couldn't have been like that. I'd only had it. But I would wake up with a bit of a hangover and think, how have I got this hangover? I've only had a couple of glasses. And then he'd go, well, yeah, but you had the glass in your dressing room when you came off. Then you went to the pub with your mates and you had a couple. And then you came home and you had a couple. I'm not watching you, but you had over a bottle of mm. wine. And I'm going, I suppose I did. But it was enough to make me want to be spoiling for a fight. Anyway, eventually it got to the point where I had this big night. I'd smashed the flat up. I didn't remember anything. And all it was was he'd said to me, you asked me to tell you if you were, get if you were getting drunk. And I'd said, 
nobody tells me all of that bollocks and um the next day I realized how much I loved him how much this was never going to work with him sober and me still drinking also I didn't want to put anybody through having somebody that they didn't know when that key went in the door who was coming through the door and I stopped drinking then on the 18th of April um nine years ago and we neither of us have had another drink since we are each other's anchor and we've created a life for ourselves we've and i think with you you know it's not just you that benefit it's the ripple effect of the people around you my children now have a different life because mom doesn't drink my mom died i one of my big regrets is that i didn't give up sooner but my mom lived for 3 weeks so i feel that when i'm not religious so I feel that when she died she knew that I was on the road to giving up and it's just meant that we've created this life whereby of course we have problems my dad's not well at the moment and I'm incredibly anxious about it but dealing with those things sober is a much more rational calming realistic way of dealing with things and even you know I always worried as well when I got an episode of depression how was I going to deal with it well of course it's a million times better because Yes, of course I still get episodes of depression. I suffer from major depressive disorder. Giving up drinking doesn't stop that. But what I don't do is I don't drink, therefore I don't compound it and make it last for longer than it would normally last mm. for. So the world is a is a different place and you know I have is something that I nurture and I cherish because it's so important to me. Honestly, it, I I can relate to all that, but I think it's important. I'm sure you say as well that um it doesn't cure everything and I think with your depression that carried on, didn't it? Yeah, my I still get my I mean I'm very lucky touch wood. Um 2019 September was the last episode I had which I filmed impromptu I picked up my phone I talked about it for so many years but I'd always talked about it when I wasn't suffering and something inside of me made me pick up my phone and I chronicled this 3-4 day episode of depression in real time and it went viral and I didn't know it had gone viral until I was well again because then I went to bed for 4 days and I couldn't believe it and it's what spawned the book actually and since then I haven't had an episode all the way through the pandemic I haven't had an episode it's the longest I've gone I will have another mm. one but i'm just enjoying the fact that it's the longest i've gone ever in 32 years without an episode but like you just said there day i think neither of us would want people to think that this cures everything it doesn't stop all the problems in life happening and like i say it doesn't stop i'd never want anyone to think that stopping drinking stops depression it doesn't but it stops compounding it and it makes everything much more much easier to deal with and i'll tell you one of the main things that i got from getting sober was getting back my self esteem and liking who I was again and stop being embarrassed about who I was and stop you know I can't get rid of the shame I've got incredible shame I think the shame comes more from some of the drugs um, episodes you know but I was having complete blackouts somebody mentioned in fact it was Kay Adams mentioned this epi- this incident that had happened in Edinburgh at the festival they were sort of laughing about it you know and if my life depended on it on on it I couldn't remember it was a two day thing I remember complete and utter blackouts and I'm lucky to be alive you know Lincoln says the same but I'm just I can't live in the past I've dealt with a lot of stuff and a lot of pain that I caused people I wasn't a nasty malicious drunk you know I I I wasn't but obviously I could be worse with my family because it's only the people who truly love you who will actually hold the mirror up to you I think the self esteem's a really important thing and and for you you know when when you've got um your phone being hacked and the 
perhaps all over you it's such a stress outside what a lot of us have got to put up with you know so when you feel bad mm. about yourself as it is because for me I couldn't even look at myself in the morning because I, I didn't want to see what I was doing to myself yeah. so I would get up in the bathroom clean my teeth and I would purposely look down yeah, yeah. I would. and then if I would ever see anyone and they say are you all right Dave I would say oh yeah I've had terrible night's sleep I've got really bad I know I would do that you just like you lie to yourself and to others all the the time time. and I've even said oh I'm just getting over flu in that because I I just looked awful all the time and the thing about when you when you have a problem like that as well is that even when you are genuinely poorly no one believes you you can't drink like we did and go I've got a stomach bug I'm not well I can't come into work I'm like this no one believes you they just all think you're a pisshead and that's why and it's a horrible thing that yeah it was god i'd hate to go i'd hate to go back there but i also say to people as well you know i'm certainly not the drink please if people can be somebody that go out you know on a friday and saturday and sensibly enjoy a drink and get a little bit of a buzz on and you know occasionally get hammered with their mates that's fine you know it's not like i'm saying ban all alcohol but i just think that we should take the sexiness out of alcohol like we do with drugs it's always it's about a cheeky little wine it's wine o'clock somewhere in the world you know wine for breakfast all of this type of thing we shouldn't really be promoting alcohol as an okay drug because it is you know most domestic violence cases 98% of them include alcohol they don't include marijuana or they don't you know not that I'm a weed smoker, I'm not, but the point being is that we, we sort of demonize other things and yet we celebrate alcohol. And people, you know, 98% of domestic abuse incidents involve oh, alcohol. That's really massively high statistics, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it affects so many other things. And I was in um, the supermarket the other day and they got a whole new range of cards in there. And nearly all of them were about alcohol. Like it's an okay yeah. thing. Um, in Oliver Bonus the other day, they got light bulbs with gin. The element says gin and stuff like that. I know. I've- and, you know, throughout COVID, I was talking to some doctors and they were saying that obviously, you know, the COVID obviously was was where all the focus was. But the amount of people in intensive care because of cirrhosis of the liver and liver problems was through the roof. That's going to go on and on and on because this has been such a desperate year for people. And, you know, the alcohol and drug uptake has been incredible. And therefore, the domestic violence, the NSPCC are inundated. The ripple effect of it all is just pretty hor- pretty horrendous. I mean, you're right. And and you think uh, back in the day at Christmases, you used to get family together, Christmas Eve, Boxing Day, and, and people used to really start to fall out, you know, over the three days of Christmas. But with lockdown, we've been thrown together for all that time. People have been to, uh, working off Zoom. And uh, I know for a fact some of my clients that they've started drinking in the afternoon because they've finished their work. Yeah. And they think, you know what, I've achieved that today. Uh, I'm going to have a cheeky glass of wine at two o'clock. Then that leads on to three o'clock, another wine, open another bottle. And the other thing is as well, which is really getting on my nerves lately, is the um, all the delivery services now. You, You can order wine online through delivery at midnight have it dropped off on your doorstep. So back in our day, Denise, if the offie was shut, you were snookered, wouldn't you? Yeah, you were, because supermarkets weren't open late and stuff, you know. Yeah, it just makes it too, it makes it too easy for people. And as I say, alcohol is sexed up, you know. They, everybody thinks it's a cool thing to do and there's just a lot of people who can't can't drink sensibly. And I just think it's, um, 
it's hard it's hard not to be preachy sometimes you know because people go oh I could never stop I wouldn't be able to have any fun and I think oh my god you've got no idea you know life is much more fun without without that I'm not saying that you know there's not times when you think oh it would be lovely you know to be a normal drinker and when your friends come around they're all having a little glass of champagne and getting a little buzzy to go out and everything that would be lovely but unfortunately people like you and me and Lincoln we can't drink like that so that's just how well, it's it is. all or nothing isn't it and what you said earlier you've got no yeah. off switch and there's many of us who haven't and and when you realize that yeah. it's you've got to stop it to me I use the analogy of if you like a king prawn curry and you're allergic to prawns, you're going to be ill, aren't you? And that's the same as us with alcohol, you know. It just doesn't serve us anymore. So what do you and Lincoln get up to now you don't drink? He obviously is an artist. Yeah, we like to we like to do very little. We like to see as few people as possible. <laughs> we love our own company. Yeah. Lincoln has got a mat at the door which says, <laughs> um, Lincoln is quite happy when they started the rule of six, Lincoln was going, I'm happy with the rule of two. Bring it down. Bring it down. <laughs> we, we're not antisocial. But they, listen, if there's a party to go, I'm talking about pre-COVID and post-COVID. If there's a party to go to of somebody that means a lot to us, people go, do you still go to parties? What we do is we'll go early. We'll go early for a couple of hours. And when everybody starts to get pissed, we leave. Nobody notices you've gone. No one cares. You've got your car. And you're back there watching some lovely crappy telly with a crumpet and a cup of tea. And beyond the time you've gone, nobody remembers what happened it's anyway. Absolutely right. So, you know, we love we love to stay in, we love our own company, we love our food, and um and and we and we love our holidays, you know. So that's really what we what we like to do. And yeah, so it's just simple, simple pleasures. Lincoln work, we you know we both work incredibly hard. I mean, another thing is that what sobriety has given us is these is our life back completely. Lincoln became an artist at 40 and um, he would never have been able to do that in the life that he led before. He's such a hard worker. He's a brilliant painter and he's also a great businessman. So he um, he paints the art. He sells the art. I am coming up 63 in May. And we're always being told what an incredibly ageist you know, world my industry is. And it can be but I'm doing Loose Women, I'm filming Hollyoaks. I've done a, a crime show, which is on the Crime and Investigation Channel on Monday nights at nine o'clock. And um, I've been doing three jobs all the way through lockdown. So I just think, you know, I'm doing it for the old birds. There's life in the old dogs yet, as they say. <laughs> and I'm the, I'm the proof in that pudding. Well, Maya would be grateful about that because she uh, turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. and She's a spring chicken. Yeah, I know. And that's what I say to her, you know, but I, I hear you. So if there's any advice you'd give to anyone that is struggling with their drinking, what would that be, Denise? Well, I would certainly say to talk to somebody about it. It really is good to talk. And whether that's somebody close to them or whether it's somebody, you know, that they can reach out to through the sort of people that we that we support. The thing is, other than in my day, now there are so many organisations, you know, although AA, I think that that was a route that maybe I would have gone down if I hadn't met Lincoln, but that helped so many people. So many people absolutely live their lives by the 12 steps and it helps a lot of, a lot of people. But all I would say to people is, in my opinion, if you think that if, if alcohol is making you unhappy more than happy, if it's causing arguments, if it's causing the people around you to worry about it, or about you, you have a problem. 
And if you can get sober, it will be the best thing you will ever do in your life. And life is so much more fun sober than it ever was. If there's people who go, oh, I won't be able to be fun anymore. I won't be able to be funny anymore. My friends tell me that I'm much, much more fun without alcohol. We think we're funny with alcohol, but we're not quite fat. Oh my God. If I think back to the times that I thought I was funny and now- Oh my God, it's cringe, isn't it? I would hate myself because I'm like you. I turn up to an event for a couple of hours and they're spitting all over you and telling the same thing over and over again. Oh, and really up close and- and I remember being like really up close to people and, you know, oh, get one of your friends to video you when you're drunk. That'll that'll help you on the way. <laughs> I've actually <laughs> got a video that I put on my Instagram, right? I went to a, a tattoo convention in London and we drank about 10 pints of cider. How revolting. I want to be sick now. And yeah. then I was bet in this pub afterwards that I couldn't drink five pints of Stella in five minutes. Oh, my God. And I drank five pints in four minutes and then fell over on the way to the top. You are lucky to be alive, Dave. Seriously. I am. I I absolutely am. And like when I look at pictures of me two years ago, when I I just become sober, you know, I was totally different. And my positivity has changed. Em might not say that. She she might say you're still a miserable old git, but hey. um. (laughs) Doesn't change everything. No, I know. Well, the one thing about me being papped so much is, if anyone wants to look at the difference, all you do is Google Denise Welsh drunk and that will sober you up in a day, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Denise, anyway. it's been an absolute joy. I mean, I, I downloaded your book, The Unwelcome Visitor, about three days ago and I absolutely, I'm not just saying it, I love it. It's so brilliant. Thank you. And, and I'm sure so many people have benefit from either reading or listening to it. I'm so grateful you come on today. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Dave, and we'll do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Send Lincoln my regards. Tell him. I fantastic. will do. Say hello to Nadia. Right, I'll let you go and I'll let you go and see the sunshine now. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And let me know when it's going out so I can share the link and whatever. I will do, darling. Thank you. Lots of love. Lovely day. Bye, Bye. Dave. See ya. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave, or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and take care.